0: All right, well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 12 this morning. You can find it on page 528 in the Bibles provided there in the chairs. Over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, the Bible tells us that God is committed to our good. That God is seeking, loves us and is seeking to bless us in all ways. This God, the God of the universe, the perfect and holy maker of all things, right? who has no need of us at all, loves us and longs to bless us, And he blesses us in Christ. He is our heavenly father. He's committed to our good. And we read passages like James 1.17 that tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above, from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This tells us that everything... Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down to us from our never changing father. Passages like Ephesians chapter 3 verses 20 and 21 says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we would ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him, be glory in, in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. That passage is commending us to praise God because He is able to do far more abundantly than anything that we can ask or think of. And we know that this is true because He is working in us already. Or Romans 8:28. It says, uh, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I mean, we love these promises. We cling to these promises and over and over and over again, the Bible reaffirms that God is the one who is at work and he is at work for our good. Everything that we have is given for our good. So we might know him and love him and live with him. But let me ask you this. What makes something good? You ever thought about that? Who determines its quality? Who determines its excellence, its value? Is the gift good and perfect only if it's what you want, when you want it, in the way that you want it? or is it good and perfect for some other reason is god only able to do far more abundantly than all, than only the things that we would ask or think of or is he able to do far more abundantly with all of the things that we would never ask for or think of friends who determines worth Who determines value and purpose? Who gets to decide when something is good and when something is perfect? And is that person you? I think the obvious answer to that question is no, it's not me, right? So we've been working our way through Proverbs chapter 3. We've seen that it is God's desire to prosper us, to bless us, to help us to be successful, to help us to live well. God has told us, listen, if you listen to my counsel, if you heed my word, I will bless you. Your life will be prosperous. You you will have blessings. Life will go well for you if you just do these things. You'll have long life and peace. You'll have favor and good success in in both my sight and in the sight of man. You will have understanding. You'll have strength straight paths. You'll have healing and you'll have refreshment. And today we're going to add to that already plentiful list in saying that God says that if you follow my counsel, you will have abundance and wealth and love and acceptance. I mean, what tremendous gifts, what tremendous blessings our father holds out for us if we would just heed his wisdom. But in addition to that fact that God gives us wisdom to make us prosperous, we've also seen that these blessings that he holds out don't always come to us in the ways that we would prefer or the ways that we would expect. They come according to God's perfect timing. This, These promises, they're not guarantees of immediate earthly blessing, are they? It's not that you can just look at this passage and claim and name worldly health and and wealth and prosperity. Because all of these good and perfect gifts that he's promising to us, all of these blessings to make us prosperous, find their fulfillment not in this life, not in this world, but in God. And so we've seen verses 1 through 4. Life is lived fully when we devote ourselves to the Lord holy. In verses five through eight, we saw that life is lived fully when we trust in the Lord completely. And this morning in verses nine through 12, though it speaks of abundance and wealth and love and acceptance, the main idea that he's trying to communicate here is that life is lived fully when we honor the Lord confidently. Now I wrestled with which word to use there as my adverb. You have no idea Phyllis, the conversations that Phyllis and I had about this. I wanted to use the word assuredly right? because it just focuses on assurance. The assurance we have through faith in him and all that he has done and is doing. But Phyllis is like, no one ever uses that word. So I'm using the word confidently because we all right. So just so you know that my word is assuredly. Phyllis's word is confidently but she wins because she's right. So um <laughs> But this passage is a practical outworking of our wholehearted devotion to and complete trust in the Lord that we saw from verses 1 through 8. And it pushes it out into every extreme of life. Okay? And so in verses 9 through 12, this is part of what it looks like to acknowledge God in all our ways. In both those great times when life is plentiful and the Lord's provision is abundant... And in the opposite extreme, when there's pain, because the Lord's hand of discipline is heavy upon us. In this passage, the Lord is challenging our allegiances, and he's using prosperity and adversity to do that. In those times of plenty, when we feel as though God is unnecessary, and in those times of pain, when we feel as though God is against us, But friends, what I want us to see this morning is that both extremes of life, both the blessing, the the prosperity, and the adversity are gifts from the Lord. They are his provision for our good. And I pray that we will see both the high times and the low times, the sweet times and the bitter, are good and perfect gifts given by our Heavenly Father who loves us and who is seeking to bless us with what is truly our best. And the wisdom that he gives will help us to see that. Because God is seeking to bless us with good, both in plenty and in pain. I pray that we would trust in him completely and that we would honor him with full assurance because of our relationship with Christ. Because life is lived fully when we honor the Lord confidently. And so please read along with me. Proverbs Chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 for context. It says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For the length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh. And refreshment to your bones. In our passage for this morning. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Now, just like in the last two weeks, there are two promises of prosperity that are held out for us in verses 9 through 12. And so alongside long life and peace, favor and good success, alongside understanding and straight paths and healing and refreshment that we saw in verses 1 through 8, this passage, the Father is telling us that if we listen to his counsel, we will have abundance and wealth and love and acceptance. And so, first in verses 9 and 10, let's see what God means when he says and he promises us abundance and wealth. Now, we are no strangers to the love of money, right? Especially not in the culture that we live in. We know the blessings that come from material abundance, I don't know if you saw some of the reports lately, but now for a mere $10,000, you can have the first ever prototype of the hoverboard. Right? That uh, prophetic movie Back to the Future is coming to life, and you can, for a measly 10K, have the latest hoverboard. We get that the, abund- the, the, the blessings that come from material abundance, right? We understand that what wealth can afford us, and let's face it, to one degree or another, we've all felt as though our lives would be better if we just had more, right? No matter what level that you operate on, you would just, you kind of, we we fall into that mindset. My life would be better if only I had more. More wealth equals more security, equals more opportunities, more entertainment, more travel, more pleasure, more to pass along to my kids. In short, more wealth means simply a better life. Isn't this one of the biggest reasons why we as a culture work as hard as we do and we make our jobs, we make our, our, our success in the workplace such an idol because we know that if we advance, we get more money and with more money, we can do more stuff. Our life is better. And it's not just enough for us to have food or clothing or a roof over our heads, is it? We want to have better food. We want to have new clothing. We want to have a nice and large roof for all the nice and large stuff that we want or we feel like we need in order to make our lives better. All right? I mean my kids get this, but Gabe is a budding entrepreneur. This guy, he has a new business plan every single week. My favorite one so far is that Gabe really liked the tacos that Phyllis made, and so he decided that it would be a great idea if we started a taco stand out on the street corner, and then we could invite his favorite band, Switchfoot, to come and play, and we could earn money there on the street corner selling tacos, and they could listen to Switchfoot. You know? I mean, but this is just the way Gabe is. I mean, he's always thinking about this stuff, and so I remember vividly one time last year, as Ryan. after, it was in the winter, it was right after we had a snowstorm, and I'm coming back from my life transformation group, it was a Thursday morning at like 8 a.m., and, and I'm rounding the corner, and I see Gabe halfway down my block, and, and he's dragging behind him his tiny little plastic orange snow shovel, and he's going door to door out in the cold, ringing on doorbells to see if he could shovel snow for money you know and it, don't get me wrong i love i love the initiative i love the willingness to work i would have preferred had he asked first but nevertheless gabe gets it right you have to work hard to gain wealth and you want to gain wealth because wealth makes your life better I don't do that. <laughs> proofs in the pudding my son <laughs> now more often than not our desires uh, to work hard and labor, it's not just to provide enough for ourselves or our families. Now, maybe that's where you find yourself. But if we could truly get what we wanted, if we truly had the earning potential that we desired, we wouldn't settle for just enough. The truth is we'd want abundance. We would want wealth. We would want an overflow of blessing now friends let me just stop and say right here that desire like all desires have their root in God that desire for abundance and wealth and overflow I think is originally a God given desire but yet it has been corrupted and tainted and sin and grounded in this world and that will never be able to satisfy the longings of our hearts though those longings were meant to find their satisfaction in God But what do we do when we actually earn wealth or when we actually provide for our families? Who gets the credit for what we produce? We do, right? We look at the money in the bank. We look at what we've got. and We say, you know, I worked hard to earn that. I'm going to spend it any way I please. Right? What do we tend to do with the produce of our labors? Well, we, we tend to either spend it or we tuck it away. We save it. We hoard it up. Or we might invest it so that it can earn more. But how is, that, how is God related to the way that we think about our income, our wealth, the way that we spend our money, the way that we invest our money, the way we save our money? How is God connected to your ability to produce or to earn? Where is God in your abundance in your wealth, in your overflow, in the fruit of your labors? Where is God when things are good and when you have everything that you need? Our passage this morning challenges us in that. Verse 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Now we are to use our wealth... To honor the Lord, that Hebrew verb translated "honor" means to treat the Lord as weighty. It comes from a root of a verb that means to be heavy. This means that this person has carries a social weight. I mean, that's what money communicates, does it not? It communicates prestige, rank, or importance, right? Our our our, our I mean, just in every intersect of life, there's a division between what we like, our socioeconomic status. Like, not everybody lives on Beverly Hills, for example, right? I mean, you've got certain people that can afford to do that. And we see this play out all the time in our lives. Like, if you go to a fancy restaurant, who gets to sit in the best seat of the house, I don't know. I can't afford to go there. But when I watch TV and movies, they would tell me that it's people with rank, people with money, people with importance. Who sits courtside or up in the luxury boxes during the game? Who is the one who sits on the throne surrounded by dignitaries and noblemen in the grand hall of the palace? It's the one who is most honored, the one who carries the most weight the one who is the most glorious, right? Now let me ask you, who is God? Is God not he who should be most honored, most glorified, given the most weight in all things? We're to follow Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 through 18. that's what it says of God. The nations are like a drop in a bucket and are counted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlines like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor all its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? This is the reality of who God is. In our foundations course last week, we started talking about the attributes of God, and one of the first ones we talked about was God's self sufficiency. We looked at passages like um, like Psalm fifty and Acts seventeen verses twenty two through thirty one. But tell us that God by his own nature has possession within himself intrinsically and eternally every quality in infinite measure. This is the God of the universe has ever been and will ever be perfect in his nature and character. He lacks nothing. And so what that means is creation adds nothing to God. We don't add anything to God But creation depends upon God for everything. He and he alone is the self-sufficient one. When we honor the Lord, when we worship the Lord, when we give to the Lord, we don't add anything to God. What we do in honoring the Lord is merely acknowledging him for who he truly is, true he truly was from all eternity past, and who he will truly be for all eternity. We're merely acknowledging, we're merely reflecting back who he is in and of himself by his own nature. That's what we do when we honor the Lord. We also know from passages like James 1:17 that everything we have has been given by him. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 7 says, "What do you have that you did not receive?" And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You did not. uh, When you look at your life, you're like, okay, well, you know, I work at my job and that's why I have money. Okay, fine. But you did not earn your life. You did not earn your ability to breathe. You did not earn your intellect. You did not earn your ability to work. You did not sustain the atoms and molecular structures that make up your home and your car and your wallet. Everything that you have has been given to you by the self-sufficient God who needs nothing. And that means that everything, absolutely everything in your life is a gift from God. So when we think about that, okay, yeah, all right. We're to honor the Lord. He's self-sufficient, doesn't need of anything. Everything that I have comes from him. So then the question automatically becomes then, okay, if God doesn't need anything, then why does God ask me for it? Because let's face it, I, I need my wealth. I can use my wealth. And if God doesn't need anything, then why does he ask me for it? Well friends, it's because God is con- he cares about our hearts. He's concerned about what we love, about what we tie our identity to. He wants us to understand that he is the giver of every good and perfect gift. He wants us to know that he and he alone is our provider. You see, our hearts are so inclined to find security and to find identity in our wealth, in what we have. And we take credit for what truly belongs to God. It is His, but yet we hoard it away. We tuck it away. We spend it. We, we abuse it. We make much of ourselves with it rather than giving glory to God and honor Him for what truly belongs to Him. We forget that at all times and in all ways, we are dependent upon God for life, for breath, and for everything. And we cling to our money as some foolish attempt to make our own way without God, as if this is my world and I am God. God, you don't worry about it. I got this. Look, look, I can earn my own way. I can earn my own keep. I'm good on my own. I don't really need you. And this is why the Bible speaks so much to that issue of money. Because we wrap our hearts around it so much. Because we know what we get from it. And so God calls us to honor him with our wealth. Because he is the one who truly has given it. It all belongs to him. And we are at all times dependent upon him for our provision. No matter how wealthy we are by the world's standards. Right, so when you think about wealth, you don't think you don't excuse yourself away, saying, "Well, I'm a poor college student, so this not talking to me." Uh, you know, I'm I'm a, ten years old and I still live in my parents' house, and so this doesn't refer to me, friends. You have received everything that you have, no matter how much or how little, and we are to honor God with what we've been given. But there's more to it than that. When we spend the wealth that we've been given. Whose honor and prestige are we seeking to display? Is it God's? Or are we trying to add to our own? See, this passage says to honor the Lord, not with some, not with the some, but with all of our wealth. It says honor the Lord with your wealth. It doesn't say some of it, it says all of it. So the way we spend, the way we save, the way we use our wealth, all of it is meant to honor the Lord. Now don't get me wrong, guys, paying your light bill, that's honoring to the Lord. Okay? But the sad truth is, we don't we don't seek to use what we've been given to honor the Lord. We use it to honor ourselves and and God is at a very very distant second at best. He gets the leftovers. If there's anything remaining and I remember he can have some of that. Now I doubt that anyone would say here I am more weighty. I am of greater honor than God. But friends what kind of story would our bank account say? That's a real and legitimate question. Why does the saving and spending of our God-given wealth so often seek to enhance or improve our own glory. Wisdom changes that. When we read God's word, when we read what he has to say about money, and let's face it, guys, I could do sermon after sermon after sermon on this issue. But wisdom is saying, look, this was given to you by God. Use it to make the Lord famous and prominent. Not to make him something that he's not, but to display who he truly is. All of it belongs to him. All of it has been given by him. We are merely stewards of those who are called to be wise with the wealth that we've been given. And so to use it, whatever wealth that we've been given, no matter how much or how much or how little, this is not speaking, only speaking to the wealthy, but to all of us who have received anything from God. We are to use those things to help ourselves and to help others see God for who he truly is, to display his weightiness with all of our wealth, with all that he has given us. That's challenging, right? I mean... Already, this is convicting. So then you're like, okay, what do I want to do? Guys, I'm not going to get real practical here because I just want to challenge the concept and the way that we think about our wealth. That being said, I I will help you to say that this does not mean that you have to give up everything that you have. Like, I've got to give it all back to God. It's not a, a call to vows of abject poverty. But it does challenge the way that we spend it does challenge the way that we use, does challenge the way that we save what we've been given. But the passage also helps us uh, a little bit more practically. Why stewardship of our wealth that God has given us looks like giving Him, you know, or, or honoring Him with the first fruits of all your produce, right? First fruits of all your produce. Uh, he's not addressing only farmers here, so you can't just say, "Well, I'm not a farmer." don't have first fruits, don't have produce, uh, I'm good. Modern translation might be with the very first of all your gross earnings. Think of it that way. Very first of all your gross earnings. Now, I I need to stop right here and just kind of let you know about something, right? Before you begin to think to yourself, oh, here we go again. Another pastor standing up here lecturing on why you need to give to the church. You need to know something, I have been in vocational ministry since 2010. That's when people made the foolish decision to start paying me to do what I do, right? And from, since 2002, this is the first time ever I have preached on the issue of giving. And largely because of the stigma that comes alongside. I leave that to all of the lay elders to go and preach on giving. I don't actually do it myself. So this is the first time I'm doing that. But again, I'm not getting practical here. My my point is not just you need to give more money to Redeemer Church. I'm really wanting you to consider how the Lord is calling you to honor him with all of your wealth, right? And to truly give him the first fruits of all your produce, right? That's what we're getting at here. As a display of honor to God for his provision, when, when God made a covenant with his people, Israel, he called them to honor him and to give thanks to him for his provision by giving a percentage of the first and the best of their harvest back to God. And if you weren't a farmer, you were to give of the first and best of your flock. Or if you were a tent maker, you were to give the first and best of that which you have received and earned through your tent making. Even if the Lord blessed you with a child, a child was to be devoted to the Lord. There were special sacrifices you were to make in order to honor the Lord with that. That's just the way the Lord set it up. And so if you read through the Bible, I mean, especially Genesis through Deuteronomy, but really through, throughout the entirety of Scripture, God calls his people to honor him and to give thanks for his provision from their hearts with their first and their best. And this is tied to their covenant commitment to God as God's people. So to be God's people, is to be in a covenant relationship with him, and part of that means honoring the Lord with your wealth and giving him first fruits of all your produce. And I I want to be clear here. Our passage in in Proverbs chapter 3 is very much tied to these Old Testament expectations for giving. Because in verse 1 it says we are to not forget the Lord's teaching, but keep his commandments. Verse 3 says that we are not to forsake God's covenantal steadfast love and faithfulness. Well, not honoring God with our wealth would do that. Okay? Verse 6, we are to acknowledge God in all our ways, including our wealth. Verse 7 calls us to fear the Lord, which would include honoring him and uh, his prescription for worship. And so in all of these ways, we are called to honor the Lord with our wealth, with all our hearts. And so when we look at passages with regards to giving... Or like this passage here where it talks about the first fruits of all of your produce. We shouldn't look at it and say, okay, what is the minimum percentage that I am required to give back to God? That's not getting the the point of this text. Right? What this text is getting at is a joy-filled, grateful response to God for all of his provision. That knows your very life is owed to him. And it seeks to say, God you are not honored in my leftovers. How can I give you my first and my best? And Lord, I desire to do this because you have given me all that I have. But even more than that, you yourself have given me your first and your best. Because you see, God has sent his son, his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life in obedience to God in all his ways. And he died as a ransom to pay the penalty for our sin. And after three days, Jesus rose from the grave as a first fruits, as proof of God's gift of salvation. Christ's resurrection was the first fruits of our forgiveness, our redemption, and our justification. Christ's resurrection was the first fruits of our new life in him and was a guarantee of the first fruits of our eternal resurrection that we might live with God, body and soul, forever in God's blessing. Because Christ's work, we who are in him have received the Holy Spirit who is himself the first fruits of our purification and our sanctification and our glorification. We are being remade into the image of Christ without any hint of sin because of the first fruits of the Holy Spirit who is working in us. So you see, this is intimately connected to who we are in Christ. And so I long to give, not to try to pay God back, for all that he has done for me, but to display his greatness and his glory and his weightiness for who he truly is and for all that I have been given in Christ Jesus. And so I want to give him my first and my best. And first, that's going to look different for all of us. It's not a matter of percentage. It's not a matter of rules to keep. It's a matter of a heart desire that's, that recognizes That our whole being and everything that we have is a gift of God. And I want to honor him with everything. So I give him my first and my best. That has to change the way that we think about wealth. Verse 9, God is saying, honor me with all that I have given you. Display my glory with your first and your best. And verse 10, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now, God is not saying here that if you just give God $5, God will turn it into $500, okay? He's not saying just, tr- he, he's saying, trust me with all that I've given you. Honor me with your wealth, with, the f- with your first and with your best. And here's the thing, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. You will not be lacking, You will see all that I have for you in Christ. You will see just how much my blessings flow. And so don't store up your treasures here on earth. Store them up in heaven. Because that's where moth and rust can't destroy. That's where thieves can't break in and steal. I will not leave you poor. I will make you rich. But not rich in earthly terms. Rich in Christ. Christ. I will provide for your every need. That desire that you have for blessing, for overflow, for abundance and wealth, that desire was meant for me and I alone can satisfy it. And so why does he use this language then of barns being filled with plenty and your vats being bursting with wine? What's he getting at here? Well, here's what he's getting at you read the Bible and you read where these promises come to bear, this is God saying that he's going to keep the blessing Isaac made to Jacob in Genesis 27-28. This is God promising to bless Israel's covenant obedience in Deuteronomy 28 verse 8. This is God guaranteeing that that we will receive the blessing of the long-awaited day of the Lord in Joel chapter 2 verse 24. This is God saying just as he would later in Malachi chapter 3 verses 8 through 12. Will you rob God? Or I said. Or sorry. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, "How have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions?" You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. But God challenges us here, he says, to test him in this. He says, bring your full tithes into the storehouse. Give me your first, give me your best, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Then in that day, all the nations will call you blessed. Blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. See, ultimately God is promising us in verse 10 a restoration of the Garden of Eden where God's people once again will live with God in complete intimacy and in complete dependence upon God in the abundance of his lavish wealth and blessing. This Was not meant to arouse our earthly greed. But to lead us to a deep and dependent trust in him. Which is made evident in the way that we steward God's gifts to us. We can now give freely and cheerfully. Because we are confident that God will bless us far, far more than our truest and greatest needs. Because Christ himself is our true abundance and our true wealth. He is in every way our perfect provider. And God is saying, listen, I'm going to take care of you. And so, we are to honor the Lord confidently with the wealth of his provision to us. And the result of that is an even greater overflow of his abundance and wealth in Christ. But there is a second blessing in verses 11 and 12. That those who honor the Lord confidently will find love and acceptance. We are hardwired to long for love and acceptance. There is no one here that wants to be hated, that wants to be despised, that wants to be rejected. We all want people to love and accept us. But oftentimes we place conditions on what that looks like for me to be loved and accepted. Right? If you're going to love me and accept me, it has to look in this way. Right? This is one of the problems with that book, The, the Five Love Languages. Right? You know, it's got this love tank imagery that I've got this love tank and you, my spouse, are to fill it up. That's what's going to help me to know that you love and accept me is if you fill up my love tank. And to do that, to fill up my love tank, you have to speak my love language. And oh, look at that. Look at that, you're doing acts of service in a way to show your love for me. That's so nice, but too bad, because my love language is words of affirmation and physical touch. So try again, right? But, I mean, far be it that you would ever speak truth to me in love, or that you would call me to something different than what I am or what I want to be, because you know what's for my good or what's for my best, It's not loving or accepting to plead with me that I might be in the wrong here. That my only true heart satisfaction would be found in Christ. But friends, you know, we do the same thing with God. I feel loved and accepted by God when God blesses me with... Plenty of of all of the stuff that I want, or when God just gives me whatever I want, when life is going just the way that I planned, the way that I intended, I feel blessed by God, but when it doesn't, when God goes against my plans, when God doesn't give me all that stuff that I've been praying for, then God must hate me. When I'm being rebuked or when I'm being reproved, when I'm being exhorted to turn away from my sin when there's pain and hardship or loss in my life, when I'm weary and life is just difficult, then God has to be against me. God can't possibly love me. See, it's really easy for us to affirm the Lord's good and perfect provision in the sweetness of plenty and prosperity if we remember to do that. But so often we forget that bitter adversity is the Lord's good and perfect provision too. If you find yourself in suffering this morning, you find yourself downcast, maybe you're physically in pain or just spiritually, there's this deep longing and sorrow and darkness. You feel as though God despises you. I want you to take comfort from these words in verses 11 and 12. It says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord... Reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Friends, if you are a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, you are a beloved son and daughter of our heavenly father who is provided, who cares for you, who loves you. He does not hate you. If God hated you, he would not bother with you. He would give you over. But if you feel God's heavy hand of discipline upon you, it's evidence that God loves you, that He cares for you. If you're in a time of reproof, you need to understand that God is in every way committed to you for your good, even though it's unpleasant. You see, God's love is not just this universal acceptance. So I'll just take whatever, I just love whatever. God's love is a holy love without any tinge of of sin, without any tinge of of darkness. And when God loves us and disciplines us, it's not because God is sinful or God's in the wrong here. It's because God loves us with a holy love and he knows that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so he's disciplining us and reproving us as his dearly loved children... Because he's doing what is necessary to lead us to himself. I mean, discipline is foundational to restoration from sin. You get that, right? I mean, Christ, God's dearly loved son, received the due punishment for our sin. The righteous one took upon himself the condemnation of the unrighteousness. He suffered horribly. So that through faith in the perfect sacrifice of Christ, we might become sons and daughters of God. Right? We become children through discipline, through punishment. Right? He took on all our sin, and we then received His righteousness. But you have to understand that God's purpose in our salvation is more than just paying the penalty that our sins deserves. That he is in every way committed to overturning and uprooting and removing every effect of sin in our lives. God's purpose is not simply to declare us righteous in Christ through faith in him. But to actually make us righteous and holy in Christ. And so just as a father instructs and disciplines his children because he wants his child to grow to maturity, he wants his child to know that he loves him, he wants his child to know wisdom and truth, he wants his child to live well in God's honor and blessing, so our heavenly father disciplines and reproves us so that we might become like Christ, living in holiness, in dependence, in obedience to God, which is for our good. It's always for our good. Friends, Christianity is no country club religion. It is a means of restoration and redemption through which we are conformed to the image of Christ. And sometimes that comes through immense prosperity. And at other times, God designed it to come through adversity. One pastor pointed out that when we suffer, it isn't God angrily taking from us. It is God lovingly reinvesting in us. Suffering feels like anger. It feels like loss. It feels like hell. But the heroes of the faith that we read about in Hebrews chapter 11, they suffered. They trusted God with all their hearts and some of them were tortured, killed, and mistreated. Was God mad at them? No, he commended them. He said, these are men of whom the world is not worthy. God was proud of them. He said, God is not ashamed to be called their God. To use the language of verse 12 in our passage, he delighted in them. So when you are suffering... Here's what you have to remember. Your sufferings are not evidence against you, and nor are they evidence against God. It's quite the opposite. Your sufferings prove that God, your Father, cherishes you. Whereas Hebrews chapter 12 says, quoting these verses, God is treating you as sons. Because God loves us and is treating us as sons, therefore we should not despise the Lord's discipline. We shouldn't hate what God is doing in our lives just because it's not what we want or because it's hard or painful. You know, just as some children foolishly resist parental discipline or or any authority figure for that matter, we are warned not to reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. You guys, we've all been tempted to do this. It's easy, even as professing Christians, to become bitter or even angry with God when we endure physical and emotional pain. When there's hardship and difficulty, when we're experiencing loss, we have this tendency to hate the Lord's discipline. And we actively oppose or rebel against what God is doing in our lives. Rather than patiently accepting it and trusting that the Lord is up to good, we rail against what the Lord is doing in our lives. Or maybe we're, we're the opposite. Maybe we're not active and outward and just kind of railing against God. Maybe we're, we're the other extreme. We're, we're becoming weary of the Lord's reproof. Because when the Lord is in the process of correcting us, we're tempted to despair. We're tempted to wallow in misery because this is not fair. Why can't God just give me what I want? I'm doing these things for God. Why isn't God blessing me? And so we become weary of his reproof. We, we shut down. We close ourselves off. We grow tired or apathetic or indifferent to what the Lord is doing in our lives. And it's But instead, we should remember that we are children in whom our Heavenly Father delights. I and mean, that he is sovereignly allowing us to suffer because he loves us and is committed to our good. Because don't reject it. Don't grow weary. I know that it's hard. But we trust in him confidently and with great assurance because we are his children. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote in the chapter entitled The Divine Goodness in his book The Problem of Pain. He writes, those divine demands which sound to us, to our natural ears, most like those of a despot and least like those of a lover, in fact, marshal us to where we would want to go if we knew what we wanted. So God marshals us to what he knows is best for us, though often we just don't get it. We are not omniscient. We do not know everything that the Lord is up to. Just because we don't understand what the Lord is up to, we trust him. We know that he is seeking our good. So we allow God to marshal us towards his end, even if we don't understand what that is. I mean, thank God that he cares enough about us to discipline us as a father and doesn't allow us to just continue down the same path of foolishness. Thank God that he doesn't allow us to go far, but he restores us to himself. But here's the thing that we can take hope in. Unlike our earthly fathers who may be very well-meaning, God's discipline is absolutely perfect. It is without sin. It is without error. Which means that you can be sure that every trial that comes into your life is perfectly designed by our Heavenly Father for your benefit. It is for your good. And you know, it's been said, He will melt you in His furnace that He may stamp you with His image. You know, I I remember sitting in a seminary class listening to my professor Randy Stinson, talk about adoption. Now, he wasn't talking about the theological concept of our adoption in Christ. He was speaking from his own personal experience of adopting two little girls. So I don't know how many children he's adopted by now. It could be more, but there were two at the time. Right. And And he was talking about, okay, when did these adopted kids actually become a part of our family? When did that actually take place? And, and much to his surprise, it wasn't when the papers were signed and the names were changed. That's not when those two little girls became a part of their family. It wasn't when they brought those little girls to their new home and, and they gave them all of their new clothes and their new toys and set them up in their new bedroom. It wasn't even when they fed them and cared for their practical needs. He said they actually became a part of the family the first time they were lovingly disciplined just like the other kids. That was truly when everyone in that family recognized and embraced them as their own. Friends, God has shown his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were adopted into God's family through the blood of his most precious son. But there's an even surer sign of God's love and acceptance to us than the wealth and the abundance that we receive from him. Because let's face it, the wicked prosper in this life too. Neither an even greater indication that God continues to show his love for us is by disciplining us as his beloved sons and daughters in whom he delights. He delights in you. And so do not grow weary. Do not go faint-hearted. Because God loves us and delights in us, He will never give up on us. He will do whatever is necessary, through prosperity and through adversity, to lead us to our best, even when we don't get it. So don't despise him, and don't grow weary. Trust in him. Take confidence in the fact that he loves and delights in you and receive his kind discipline and reproof for his glory and for your good, for your joy. He is assuring you that you are his child. So honor him in that assurance. So in, pl- in plenty and in pain, life is lived fully when we honor the Lord confidently. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and mercy towards us. God, we, we have to admit that we, we don't always understand what you're up to. We're so prone to take credit for ourselves. Um when you do good things to us and giving us abundance and wealth, we take credit for that and we don't honor you with what we've been given. And when you bring about difficulties in our lives that are meant to discipline us and to reprove us and to lead us back to you, not so often we tend to reject it and rebel against you or to just become weary of it rather than recognizing that this is evidence that we are your children and you are up to good that you love us and delight in us god i pray that we would be absolutely assured of who we are in christ that we would know without a doubt not looking at circumstances and not looking at life settings looking to who we are in Him and all that He has done for us, we might know that we are Your children, that You love us dearly, that You delight in us, and may that lead us to honor You in every aspect of our lives with complete confidence and with full assurance through faith in Jesus Christ that we are Yours. And we thank You that You don't leave us to ourselves, that You don't allow us to continue Uh, in sinful ways of thinking, and sinful patterns, in, in, in attempts to live our lives without you. But you use all things together for good, for those who love you, and those whom you have called according to your purpose. Lord, may that be our hope this morning. We thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.